You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Michael Behe. He's a professor at Lehigh. Uh, we're going to be talking about the evolution of complex biochemical systems. Uh, looking forward to speaking to him. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Sure. My pleasure to be with you. Yeah, and I, uh, I don't know if this will take the guts out of the conversation, but you know, you're, <laughs> you're speaking to someone that does not adhere to neo-Darwinism and all that, you know, the modern synthesis. So don't worry sure. or feel like you have to constantly, uh, you know, defend uh-huh. it. Okay. So, okay. But, that but, sounds but great. If you would, uh, yeah. If you would, please, please go into um, what has your research and your work been in the field of, uh, you know, evolutionary biology or biochemistry? Well, uh, for the past 20 plus years, I've been interested in, in the evolution of complex biochemical systems. Many folks don't realize that back in Darwin's day, they didn't know that, you know, there were such things. Uh, the cell was um, thought to be a, a little piece of jelly, protoplasm. Uh, their microscopes were really poor uh, compared to modern ones. And molecules, which turn out to be uh, the fundamental level of matter, uh were theoretical entities back then. Nobody was quite sure whether they uh, existed or not. And so uh, they concentrated on animals and and visible features, visible to the, uh, pretty much to the naked eye. And then, of course, uh, science progressed and, and rather than a piece of jelly, we found out that the cell is is actually run by machines, uh, no kidding, uh, real molecular machines, you know, trucks and buses and outboard motors and and uh, and more computers in the cell and, and all sorts of fancy equipment and signals for the trucks and buses to turn left and to turn right. And it's all very, very tightly regulated. And rather than jelly, it turns out to be kind of a a miniature, you know, factory or city in in its uh um uh, in its structure. So I grew up kind of believing in Darwin's theory because that's what I was always taught in school. 
but at some point for for some reason i i started to question it and um 20 years ago um i decided that uh in fact it was grossly inadequate to describe the chemical biochemical foundation of life and so i wrote a book that quickly got me in trouble and uh, but nonetheless uh argues that rather than random changes and filtered by natural selection that most of life the major features uh are overwhelmingly designed uh, purposely designed by an intelligent agent and so that that's uh, as you might expect uh caused a bit of controversy but i've been following it up for for 20 years and and uh, my conclusion uh, for myself, get, only gets uh, stronger and stronger as we know more and more about about uh, the foundation of life. When did the did the design start? Do you think it started, you know, uh, when life began, or when? Uh, yeah. you know, did it did it happen at various points and then stop after eukaryotic cells came about, or is it is it going on today? I mean, what do you think? Well, that that's an excellent question. And the short answer is I don't know, um, but <laughs> it um, it you know since you know cells were around a long long time ago, billions of years ago, clearly there must have been design before them. But as as I write in my newest book, Darwin Devolves, uh, that evolution is incapable of. Um, producing much simpler features than a and then a complete cell, so uh, and much simpler features than uh, say the wings of birds and and so on. So that features that arose only later in history of life uh, would have required design as well. Um, now, now the, the you can't tell just by looking at something you know, how it was made, you know, there might have been some sort of, you know, program or front loading of information or some such thing built into the beginning of the universe. And there was no actually active manipulating of anything along the way, or it might have, you know, be continuously going on uh, from moment to moment. That's a, That's a different and much harder question to address than simply, you know, is something designed or not. Well, you know, you just mentioned the wing. <clears throat> it makes no sense that there'll be a partial wing and a, a bird would almost fly. And then all of a sudden, now it flies. You know, it, it doesn't make sense that we, what would be the impetus to go most of the way, but not complete it. And it just, it just doesn't seem likely at all. It just seems ridiculous. Yeah, that that's quite correct. And, uh, you know, it's, it, Scientists have been trying for a long, long time to uh, come up with some credible pathway for how such things develop, such as as wings, and um, have failed even to this day. Nobody, nobody knows, and and they're even uh, looking at things on the grossest anatomical level. They're saying, well, maybe feathers arose first to uh, keep a. a proto bird warm and then luckily you know it spreads out its arms and you know why it it finds that the 
the feathers can also kind of give it a bit of lift off the ground. And that's that's what we term in the in science a a just so story, you know, kind of like the children's stories that Rudyard Kipling wrote in the early twenty early part of the twentieth century. You know how the tiger got its stripes and how the giraffe got its neck and and so on. They're they're, they're essentially just uh, inventions with no solid evidence to. Uh, to support them. And even worse is that we now know uh, with the work of science in the past 75 years that feathers are made from molecules and they have much fine structure. They're not not just little things that can change into something more complex quickly or or rapidly. Uh, And uh, absolutely no one even tries to explain um, the evolution of feathers in in real uh, detail, let alone you know everything else that's necessary for flight. Uh, and if you know, that's one of the things that really surprised me when I first got into this business in the early 90s, is that you know I had been taught that Darwin's theory explained everything, but uh, and I believed it. But then I started uh, to wonder, and I said, well, let me go into the science library and look up papers that try to explain or, you know, see what has been explained. And it turns out, you know, pretty close to nothing has been explained in real detail. It it just seems that uh, over time, Darwin's theory got to be the, uh, the only acceptable explanation. And um, people assume it's truth. Uh, rather than demonstrating it. And when you become a little bit skeptical, it, it doesn't take long at all to see that it's uh, pretty much a house of cards. Well, why then are people so virulently opposed to uh, anything but Darwinism? Why do they get so angry and they make fun and they go crazy if you suggest anything else? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, if you want to kill your career in in biology, uh, all you have to do is suggest that well, Darwin didn't quite get it right. Um, well, that's an excellent question, and and it's a complicated uh, topic. But I think there are a couple of uh, reasons for it, and uh, one is that even from the beginning with uh, Darwin and his uh, friends, such as Thomas Huxley, who was a biologist back then, and, and a group of other scientists uh, called the X Club, they they were secular folks, and they wanted to kind of break the influence of the Church of England uh, back then. And they thought that if science could be seen as the only arbiter of, of explaining living things, then uh, they would have gone a long way to achieve their goal. And also since then, many other folks have taken a, uh, are, are probably similarly motivated. That is, they think that anything, if there's anything other than chance or some uh, completely unintelligent, unguided process, uh, then that leaves open the door for teleology, and that smacks of religion, and and many folks, especially in science, are viscerally opposed to that. 
there are some folks who aren't so viscerally opposed, but they kind of have been immersed in these assumptions like I was before I I thought about it uh, 20-ish years or so ago. And so they really can't think of anything else. And the... um, and the the culture, our culture, says that if you uh, doubt evolution, why you're you know you're either dumb or you know uh, blinded by religion or or some such thing, and you can be ignored. And so, if people hear objections, scientists hear objections, most often they don't try to uh, actually answer them. They just kind of laugh and and uh, and go about their business. They don't don't even bother with it. So, uh, so what, what yeah. are um, what are some examples that have that have continued to reinforce your your belief that there has to be a designer and things are designed? Like, you know, maybe a few mm-hmm. watershed moments over the past thirty years that that just hit you like a ton of bricks. <laughs> well, one one is when you actually read about biochemical systems. I'm sure that most folks listening to the podcasts don't have a background in biochemistry, but it it turns out that at the very foundational level of life, things are really elegant and super complex. Uh one good example that I wrote about in Darwin's Black Box, which was my first book on this topic, is something called the bacterial flagellum. And it's actually, a literally, it's an outboard motor that bacteria use to swim. It's got a propeller. It's got a drive shaft that connects the propeller to the uh, motor. It has a motor that uses the flow of acid from the outside of the cell to the inside, uh, to power the turning of the motor, just kind of like water flowing over a dam can uh, power a, uh, a turbine, the turning of a turbine. It has clamps to hold it on to the membrane while it's it's turning, just like we need clamps to hold an outdoor uh, motor on a boat in our everyday world while it's uh, while it's doing its job. And also, it's got dozens and dozens of mechanical parts that have to fit together really uh, closely for it to work. And so, that to most people, that screams design because we recognize that a mind has done something when we see parts that have been arranged for a purpose. Uh, whenever we see letters put together to spell words or notes put together to make some nice tune or um, physical parts put together to make a machine, uh, we always realize that that took intelligence because random processes can't see ahead. They can't plan. They can't have purposes. So that's the basic That's the basic uh, uh, realization that life is, you know, stunningly complex down to a very uh, basic level, and it has ha- all the hallmarks of, of design, a, a purposeful arrangement of parts. And my second, uh, my next two books, one was called The Edge of Evolution, which came out in the year 2007, and then one just came out in 2019. It's called Darwin Devolves. It, they probe how, how much evolution can explain versus what required design. 
you know, it, it's clear that Darwin's mechanism does explain some things, uh, just not everything. It can it can change uh, organisms around the edges, but it can't make anything fundamentally novel. Uh, and um, the first or the second book, Edge of Evolution, showed that even to change two uh, tiny uh, parts of a cell, uh, two amino acid residues in a particular protein, uh, requires a, an enormous number of chances, uh, enormous number of possibilities. Uh, and I talked about the development of uh, resistance to the anti-malarial drug chloroquine and showed that, uh, you know, it takes an astronomical number of um, of uh, malaria parasites to develop resistance to it because you have to get two things correct at once, not just one thing. You need to get two things correct at once. And Darwin's Darwin's uh, mechanism is great if you only have to change one thing at a time. And when I say one thing, I mean one thing at the molecular level at a time. But if you need two coordinated, two or more coordinated um, changes, it very, very rapidly becomes uh, too difficult of a task for for Darwin. And the, the the final book, the most recent book, it's called Darwin Evolves. Um, I picked that title because I wanted to be in your face about it. You know, I wanted to make it provocative as possible. And it describes the newest results in the past 10 years or so from science. Uh, which, and science has really advanced rapidly in our uh, ability to sequence DNA to determine the exact ordering of DNA units called nucleotides in the DNA of, of anything. You know, most people have heard about the human genome being sequenced, and that was celebrated in the year 2000 with much fanfare by Bill Clinton and and uh, Tony Blair, the prime minister of, of Great Britain at the time. and um, But it turns out that uh, methods to do things like that have been improved, and so now we uh, have the complete DNA sequences of dogs and cats and cows and gorillas and and zillions of bacteria and so on. And it turns out that the interesting thing is that when we look at the DNA changes that are the mutations that help an organism and are selected by Darwin's natural selection, uh, it turns out that the great majority of, of them are ones that break or degrade pre-existing genes. They're not building anything. They're breaking what's already there. And it's kind of like, you know, how would you get quickly get, you know, better gas mileage in your car? Suppose your your life depended on getting better gas mileage for your car. What what changes could you make quickly? And of course, you know, the easiest thing to do is, you know, take off the hood and throw it away or take out the spare tire and throw it away and uh, lighten lighten the load as much as possible. And those those things are, of course, hoods and t- spare tires are useful in many occasions, but if your life depended on 
you getting better gas mileage right now than stripping down the car is the way to go. It turns out that much evolution, yeah, much evolution is like like that. It's it does help, you know. Some changes do help, but and they are selected just like Darwin would think. But they are breaking things that were already there. And uh, in in the book, I, I give some other examples. It turns out that you know our our uh, um, our best friend dogs, dog different dog breeds. It turns out that the DNA sequence of a bunch of different dog breeds has been uh, determined in the past 10 years or so. You know, you can get the DNA of, you know, Chihuahuas versus Great Danes versus Bulldogs and so on. Uh, and what have they yeah, in comparison, what do they notice? Yeah, well, again, if it's if it's this pattern that the mutations that are responsible for these features, which breeders like and select, kind of in a in an imitation of natural selection, are broken genes. So, for example, in a bulldog, if you want a dog that with a shortened snout, what you do is break the gene that's responsible for the snout being elongated. And if you want a chihuahua with short legs, you break the gene that uh, that helps make the uh, legs of a dog longer and, and so on. And another example I gave, interestingly, is the polar bear. The polar bear is, is thought to have evolved from a brown bear, grizzly grizzly bear type of bear, a couple hundred thousand years ago. And indeed, the the DNA genome, the entire DNA complement of the both the grizzly bear and the polar bear has been uh, determined. And it shows that polar bears uh, derived from the brown bears mostly by breaking genes. The gene for the pigmentation in a brown bear's fur is broken, and so the polar bear's fur is white. And it turns out that there's a gene in fat metabolism that allows polar bears to eat a high-fat diet. They eat a lot of seal blubber, uh, much more than a grizzly bear could. And it turns out uh, that's due to a broken uh, gene, a gene uh, that's involved in normally in fat metabolism, which is broken, which allows keeps 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 a lot of cholesterol out of the polar bear's blood. So, turns out, yeah, it turns out that these things are working, but by breaking stuff. And there's only so far you can go with that. You can you can improve things, but the polar bear isn't going to go back and start eating nuts and berries again, like a grizzly bear. It's not going to get oh, its brown fur back. Question yep. here then. So where are the uh, the ends of the the tree of life, you could say? So uh-huh. is it possible for humans to evolve anymore? You know, what about dogs? Are they at their final, you know, uh, state yeah. and they can only devolve from here? I mean, why? You know, bears. Where's the pinnacle of bareness and everything <laughs> else? The evolution of that. You know. Yeah, that, that's a great question, and I actually address exactly that in, in the book, Darwin Devolves, and I say that a good place, a likely place to say where the edge is, that where you can't evolve something 
to that degree is at the biological classification level of family. So there's eight major classifications. The lowest is species, the next is genus, and the next is family. Uh, and beyond there, there's another five. So family is things like cats versus dogs versus bears uh, versus raccoons and so on. So my argument in that book is that if you had a generic dog, you could not get a cat or a bear or a raccoon uh, from that. You, Those are different families that design, that is, you need purposefully to build into an organism the information uh, that reaches down all the way from, you know, cells through uh, vertebrates, through uh, mammals and so on, all the way down to the level of family. All that has to be specified. But then once you have a generic dog, you can get you know, wolves versus foxes. And, and once you have a generic cat, you can get lions and tigers and uh, pumas and domestic cats and, and so on. But when this suggest that there's an idealized thing called dog or cat or raccoon and everything else is just a, a breaking of certain genes, that the devolution of that idealized form, like it's plus uh, form? Uh, well, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's in a, a platonic form. I think there was a real you know, creature, which had pretty much all the, you know, all the um, genes necessary to be a dog. And then, yes, uh, it would devolve into the various uh, genera and and species that, that we put into the dog family, like, uh, like, uh, what are they, those... Uh, uh well uh coyotes and wolves and foxes and stuff um so yeah and as in the case of the polar bear breaking those things can allow them to adapt to different uh environments polar bear can live places that the grizzly bear can't and can eat things that the grizzly bear can't uh so it kind of increases the uh, diversity of life, but it's not building things. And Darwin's claim to fame was that he thought that he had discovered how life could arise and uh, build itself up from scratch with nothing more than random uh, changes, random mutations, plus the magic of natural selection. But it turns out it, it doesn't get you that far. Uh, it only can get you. Uh, it can only give you changes in in stuff that's already there, and mainly by breaking breaking them. So, in studying um, small scale things like you know the human cell or flagellum, et cetera, uh, you know a thought occurred to me. So, you know, with people, I, I approximate like 120 billion people have ever lived. Yet, just about all the people have two eyes, not three, and they have a heart in a certain spot in their body and a liver. And, you know, the organs have the same relative positions, the same relative size and dimensions and, and all that. Like, where are the plans kept for all of that? In yeah, a cell? Have, we, have we identified that they're kept in the DNA? Or like, where are they? 
Well, that, that's a great question, and, and the short answer is we've identified some things, but uh, certainly far from having definitive answers. Uh, people have shown, scientists have shown that there are uh, genes that are controlled genes, which control when another gene is turned on or off. And that, matter of fact, there are networks of these genes where one turns one off, but if a second one is turned on, then it modifies the first one, all sorts of fancy stuff. Uh, that is, and these networks are, are reminiscent of computer programs and extremely sophisticated circuits. And they, it is believed, control what sort of animal is built from the, some instructions in the DNA, but especially these days, people are wondering exactly whether DNA carries all the information or whether uh, it's uh, stored in other things, maybe in, in spatial configurations in the cell or modification of the DNA, you know, during the life, even during the lifetime of an animal, uh, which used to be heretical. Um, but yeah, so the short answer is yes. Some things are known, but most things aren't. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I also think about you know like the concept of a holobiont. You know, we have billions and trillions of bacteria and funguses and viruses and yeast. And uh-huh. They help us live. We help them live. I mean, it just makes the complexity of a living creature like it just makes it like Much stupefying. Better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh and all of this was has been realized only in the past 20ish or more years. Nobody knew that bacteria uh and uh they contribute to our our well-being and nobody knew that viruses could carry information from you know, uh, one species to another and and uh help and possibly, you know, change the species. And um, all of these things were are brand new. Darwin had no idea uh, of any of it. And uh, the complexity of life has mushroomed since, uh, not only since his day, but <laughs> since I began in this business, I got my doctorate in biochemistry in the late 70s, 40 years or so ago. And it, it's gotten crazily more complicated even since then and and more uh and and orders of magnitude more elegant we we now realize that you know things we didn't know existed you know a couple years ago we now realize that life could not uh could not occur with without them uh and so uh, all this time, all this time since Darwin's uh, Origin of Species, uh, people kind of naively thought that they had solved everything. And increasingly, people know they haven't, but they still insist that whatever answer has, we eventually come up with, it'll just have to fit into Darwin's theory or, or at least into some unintelligent process because simply because I think of the philosophical implications of design and teleology and so on. Yeah, like even uh, the ribosome makes, what, like tens of thousands of different proteins and amino acids right. and assembles. Yeah, I mean, even yeah. Even that, it's like, 
It's crazy. How does it do that? <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, there's a there's a really uh, there's a prominent guy, a real smart uh, fellow named e- Eugene Coonan, who works at the National Library of uh, National Library of Medicine, and he's he has despaired. He's a, a he's a real Darwinist, but he says the origin of life is such a big problem. You know, how do you get a ribosome? How do you get all the things that the ribosome needs to work and so on. And he has despaired so much that he said it, it must be due to the, uh, to a, a multiverse. That is, you know, there are 10 to the 1,000th power universes. And, you know, just by accident, things kind of glommed together in our lucky universe and produced the first life. But uh, I, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> I don't think many people will be convinced uh, by that. It's got a lot of uh, a lot of problems of its own, philosophical as well as scientific. So, if you if you believe that there's a designer, do you think at some point in our exploration that we're going to be stopped? There'll just be a wall put up, essentially, where we could just go no further because uh, of the laws in the universe, like, like a Heisenberg uncertainty and biology yeah. that we're just going to run into this wall and we just can't go any further? Well, I actually, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's kind of uh, that we'll always be able to learn more and more, but we'll never be able to learn everything or sufficiently to say exactly how life works and exactly how, say, the universe arose and, and stuff. I, I think that if you look at the history of science, it's kind of a history of people making progress and then thinking they've pretty much had it all solved and then somebody comes up with some brand new thing and they work on that and think they've got it all solved and they come up with something new. I I, I think that's uh, that'll probably happen, you know, with modern science too, that we'll think that there's something, we'll see that there's things that had not been discovered or even thought of before and people will work on that and they'll exhaust that and then find even more stuff and so i think that rather than coming up against a wall we'll find that science is really inexhaustible because the universe and life is uh pretty much inexhaustible in its uh complexity and features mm. yeah another question i know these are impossible questions but where is the where is the cell alive what part of the cell Where's the oh. brain of the cell? Where's the yeah. where's the life essence of the cell? Where is it? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and again, the short answer is I have the foggiest idea. Uh, it's clear that I mean, if you take every piece of the cell, it's you know they're just chemicals. There's proteins that are made of amino acids, and DNA is made out of nucleotides, and it's got you know fats and sugars and stuff in it, and uh and yet it a single cell you know if that's not alive then you know nothing's alive you can watch these things under a microscope and they uh go around they search for food they you know do all sorts of intelligent things and where is the intelligence yeah you know, I, I you know it's it's hard to say even for a cell, let alone for a you know a more advanced uh, kind of creature like like bunny rabbits or 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 even humans, 
so that's that's still a mystery, and whether it's you know even cells or conjunctions of physical and non-physical uh, substances, well, I think it's still an open question. Yeah, I mean, what's this? What's the simplest thing that is alive to you? You know, is it a virus or is it something else? And you know, you, no, you look at that. Yeah. Where is where is the life in it? Where does it come from? Where's the the agency? Yeah. Where's the self-referential nature? It's weird. Yeah, yeah, it, it it is. Well, if you think exclusively in in physical terms, I don't think you'll ever uh, decide where life is because because everything's reduced to uh, physical stuff, and you know, you just add one more nut or bolt or screw or something like that to a collection, it's not going to magically turn from non-living to living. So maybe there's something we're missing, but I, I personally would uh, would draw the line at cells. I, I don't think viruses are alive. I think they're kind of carriers of information, but are not themselves alive. But cells can live and eat and reproduce and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, so I, I would say that that would be my line at the cell. So what, um, I don't know, like where, do you think we'll be able to do things like precision medicine that people are talking about, or do you think there's no way because of the complexity of, of, of people, for instance? Well, I, I think a lot of progress can be made. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, it'll be able to cure everything, but there are certainly uh, some uh, areas in which it will be uh, a great help, I think, and specifically on things like cancer or genetic diseases like that, where it turns out cancers are oftentimes due to uh, mutations in genes that break controls uh, so that the uh, cell doesn't stop dividing and, and, and so on. And if you can uh, determine which genes in a particular person have been broken and uh, then you can develop drugs and other methods to ad address that particular person's cancer. So, yeah, I think uh, personalized medicine is, you know, can contribute a lot, but uh, but there will be limitations. It's, it's not easy to, to do these things. And uh, I like to tell my students when I'm teaching class that the very first genetic molecular disease uh, that was discovered was sickle cell disease, and that was discovered in the 1940s, that, that is the mutation behind the sickle cell disease, and we still don't have a cure for sickle cell anemia. So knowing what's wrong and doing something about it uh, are two different things. Yeah, I was going to ask you also about cancer itself. You know, uh, scientists say that a single cell mutates and somehow it's able to be so successful that it it grows, you know, into a whole tumor of billions of cells and on and on and on. And it just doesn't seem like, certainly it's not random, and certainly one single cell doing that wouldn't be enough for all this to happen. I just, I guess I personally think it's a, a whole cascade of, Hundreds of thousands yeah. of cells that it happens to, but I mean, what are your thoughts? Knowing what you know? uh, well, well, I'm no cancer expert, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there there certainly are a cascade of events. Uh, but uh, in the human body, there are 
trillions of cells. So if just one of them or a few of them uh, have some uh, mutation that breaks some control region to uh, keep a cell from dividing or uh, breaks a control region that turns off its ability to, you know, invade other cells or, or some such thing, then uh, then uh, it certainly could, you know, of course it does uh, escape and become a, a tumor. Um, but it, the important point for you know, my discussion here is that in cancer, nothing's being built either. And as in cancer, I think you see real Darwinian evolution in action. That thing That's succeed. what I was going to tell you, right. Yeah. That's what I was going to tell you. Because of all the things they can do, yet it still is very uh-huh. similar to our you know, somatic cells, this seems like evolution in action. It, adaptation, it, yeah. really. Uh-huh. That's right. It, it adapts to grow more strongly in, in a body, but uh, it's not making anything, and ultimately it's destructive. And uh, that's probably... Can you say that... Is there no such thing as evolution? There's just adaptation? Is that fair to say? Well, it it depends on how you define evolution. And it, it's a very flexible word. I'm, I'm happy to say that there is evolution, but, you know, sickle cell is, is, an, is evolution in the sense that it uh, adapts people to live in malarial environments. But, of course, it leads to bad stuff, too, like sickle cell anemia. Um, so, uh, it, I guess it depends on your, on your, uh, definition. Um, but I, you know, I, I've got enough, uh, enough, um, debates on my hand that I, I don't want to, uh, debate people over whether evolution occurs at all. I'm happy to say that it does, but, uh, that it's very limited in its scope and it's mostly degradative changes. So when when do you think that uh, again? What do you think the designer, you know, I just called God. When when do you think he intervened and, and imposed his design? Does he still do so today? Has he stopped for the past thousand years for some reason or other? Like, what's your yeah. thought process? Well, uh, I uh, I don't know, but um, you, probably there's a lot of philosophical considerations you have to take into effect, and it's notoriously difficult to decide what what God wants to do and and what he's done in the past and, and so on uh, but I think we probably reached uh, the end of designing stuff um, I think for philosophical reasons that humans are the kind of the goal of all this simply because we are rational, intelligent, have minds, can respond to the world that God made, and um, you know. It, um, so I think that's that's a an obvious or um, a, an excellent candidate for a good stopping point for uh, for making life on Earth. What about um, artificial intelligence? Do you think that there's going to be um, a fundamental limit to it, where it will never be? It'll never be a new form of life with its own agency. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah I, I'm a, a real big skeptic about artificial intelligence, certainly about strong artificial intelligence. I don't think uh, the smart guys will ever get to 
make a computer that could rival human thinking and never get a computer that actually does uh, does think. Um, and so far, there's <laughs> a lot of people have tried, and and I don't see anything too impressive. We heck, we can't even get self-driving cars without you know uh, pl- plowing over some pedestrians or or stuff. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I I don't think I, I don't think a mind is a physical thing, although it needs physical stuff to work. Uh, and so I don't think a computer or machine that is uh, a candidate for artificial intelligence. I don't think it uh, it will ever have a mind or uh, real true intelligence. Okay. And I guess you know. Last last question. So if you were like, you know, all of a sudden in control of the NIH and you could direct all its funding, what would, what would you have it work on? What, what are the most well, important things in science? You said needs well, to be worked on. Uh, I think uh, what what is being worked on already is is really good because you know ninety five percent of science is pretty much just finding out what what things are in life and how they work and and so on. There's only a small portion that's involved in you know uh, uh, asking questions about Darwinian evolution. I would myself. Uh, like to see projects on, you know, what can evolution really do and and look for the limits of uh, these changes, because that could have some practical implications. If we found out, for example, the limits of certain bacteria to uh, evolve um, drug resistance, then we might be able to uh, design drugs that don't get uh don't get uh become outdated because uh because of resistance but right now nobody even looks for that because they think that well since evolution produced all this wonderful stuff that you know there's no stopping uh bacteria from uh getting around any drug that we might we might come up with so that just it discourages people from even looking but if you think there is a limit or an edge so to speak to evolution then you would be interested in such questions so i'd i'd try well, to that's get that's why them. i wanted to ask you uh-huh. if 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 you're trapped in the darwinian paradigm that to me closes your mind off to a lot of avenues of research and science uh-huh. so if you if you have a different perspective that things that is unbelievably complex and that there is design in order to get this successful complexity, I'll call it. And how does that inform how science is done? How does it change how science is done, in your opinion? Yeah, well, well, yeah, it makes it can can make a big difference. Uh, as, as I said, you know, for the workaday uh, projects in science, just determining how things work right now, or you know what existed in the past, or uh, so on, then that can go on pretty much as is, but when you're thinking about how things change and things like disease or how we might get new crops to uh, feed more people without being susceptible to infections and all sorts of things, then uh, if you have a design approach rather than a Darwinian approach, you might might have uh, considered a whole lot more possibilities than, than you otherwise would. Well, very good. So what... Um What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and engage with you? Is it uh, 
Awesome. You know, just start reading your books. So what, what do you recommend? Yeah, that that's the best, and that's the best thing to do. Yeah, I've written three books, and they're all available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and 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 so on. And uh, it makes a kind of builds a case. So uh, yeah, just look up my name, uh, Michael Behe, on uh, Amazon, and you know you can start with the first one, Darwin's Black Box, and then. Uh, lead on up. And I also uh, write some uh, essays, uh, mostly they're uh, found at the Discovery Institute website. Discovery Institute is a, uh, is a kind of a think tank that champions intelligent design. So if you just kind of poke around for my name, you'll, you'll come across all of this stuff. Okay, that's great. Well, Mike, I, I really appreciate you being here and fielding the uh, the softball questions I've been throwing at you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. I've, I've had a good time. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, but we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.